BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Hi, friends. I'm Denise Hanitka, and you are listening to a brand new episode of On a Mother Level. This is a great conversation, you guys. My guest today is Carly Johnson. She is an Illinois mom, mom to a three-year-old boy named Oliver, and a motivational speaker who essentially lost her job in the last year. You see, she's a motivational speaker who does a lot of her work inside high school and college classrooms. Okay, so yeah, you can see how she essentially lost her job, right? But her message is so important, especially for kids of that age. Her message focuses on sex education and trauma recovery. Sounds really heavy until you hear the title of her TEDx talk. It is, I pooped my pants. (laughs) And she'll explain why it's called that um, on this episode. But the point is is that she's talking about all the things that we as parents, the teachers out there, maybe our bosses don't like to or don't want to talk about. But she talks about it with such humor and straightforward honesty. You're going to hear all of that from her, from the moment that she decided she wanted to become a motivational speaker to how she figured out what she would speak about. And that includes um, the PTSD of surviving the shooting on campus at Northern Illinois University. She talks about her experience that day and how it comes up now in her talks. And another big breakthrough that she makes here on this podcast is that she is going to, after nearly 10 years, she is going to report to police the rape that she experienced in college. She's going to explain all of that here in this episode. And so I'm sure you can tell by now that this is not a kid-friendly episode. There's plenty of things, though, that you can take home to your kids, especially for the age-appropriate ones. Um, But there's stuff in here for you moms of two- and three-year-olds. Seriously, when we talk about teaching our kids about the importance of consent. Carly is on all of that stuff. And so because she's been out of classrooms for the better part of a year, she's doing what we all did. Regrouped. We figured it out. She's starting a podcast. She has some other new developments in her life that are kind of shaping her mission and her direction. She talks about all of it with her trademark honesty. You are going to love Carly Johnson. And she is up now on this episode of On a Mother Level. I want to hear about your podcast that you are starting and the title of it is asking for it. And I feel like those are three words that envelop so much about what your brand is. Tell me about asking for it. So when you first hear that phrase, right, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, you know, she was asking for it. What was she wearing? What was she doing? What was, and a lot of times we take that phrase 
to mean females, women, but also it it goes for non-binary folks, LGBTQ+, the queer community, and men as well. And so while my focus is sexual violence, that goes for domestic violence, it goes for dating violence, it also goes into things like just, um, you know, hey, I lost my job and I need some some maybe I go on unemployment and someone might say well like they weren't saving they weren't doing this they were doing you know or they this this phrase I hear so much but going back to my big cause my big thing that I'm nationally internationally known as is how do we stop sexual violence and one of the big reasons and the big ways we can do that is conquering victim blaming So what I'm doing, and as a consent educator, that's kind of like my baby. That's the thing that I love going around and teaching kids and adults, and not just teenagers in the health classes. That's probably my most popular kind of demographic, but also it's things like teaching my my two-year-old son that when he sees a dog, he can't just run up and touch it right? He has to ask for consent. He has to ask for permission. So this is where that I'm taking that phrase, I'm reclaiming it, and I'm teaching the world how to ask. And not just for things like consent, but how do we ask for respect? How do we ask for things like equality and justice and things like empathy or just the list goes on. So I'm really excited. The trailer is coming out soon. Yay. Launching uh, the first three episodes within that within a couple of weeks. So yeah, I'm really, really excited about this, especially because as somebody who I make a living off of public speaking. So right, meeting people in public during a pandemic, it it hasn't been going well. So Zoom calls and, and I realized this project was kind of something I'd been working on and planning for many years. And then this was just the time to do it. So I'm really excited to finally launch. Yeah, and the next best place for you is in front of a microphone. But, you know, when you when you visit high schools and you stand in front of classrooms, you know, that's different than if you were to get in front of a Zoom class of high schoolers, you know, because the message that you're delivering is personal, is important. You know, in so many ways, it requires that that direct interaction. Exactly. And I have done a few presentations, a few keynote speeches, a few high school presentations, college presentations. I also teach public communication or excuse me, public speaking and business professional communication within Aurora University. So I went from teaching in a classroom to my students to then doing that on a Zoom call. Same same way with my public speaking events. And you do, you lose that connection of that in-person feel. But I'll tell you what, I did a high school presentation and it was kind of a hybrid class where some of the students were in class, other students were kind of just on Zoom through home. And I had about three guys stick on the call who were at home. They stayed on the Zoom call and stayed in the chat room with me and asked a bunch of questions to follow up just because they wanted Hmm. to to confirm. And for me, that's the most special things. A lot of time when we're teaching sexual violence, prevention, education, this kind of stuff and dating violence, it's like, oh, we got to get to the girls. We got to get to the young, you know, the self-defense or teach them. No, no, no. Like my favorite is talking to the guys, talking to them and really getting them to understand consent, really getting them to understand victim blaming. And it was so funny when I was pregnant with my son, everyone was like, oh, Carly, like, I hope you have a little girl, right? I hope you raise this strong feminist. And I was like, no way. I want a boy. (laughs) Like, I want a boy to raise a respectable consent, you know, asking anyways. So, so that's, I love that. I love it. 
Well, that's such a good point. And that's something I want to get to eventually here in the podcast, because I'm the mom of two boys. And, you know, you do want to wonder how, how do you raise, you know, they're, they're four and two right now, but, but it's not too far away to think about those conversations having to happen within a household. And that's my job as their mom. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Do you worry that, um, you know, in the past year, because you haven't been able to do as many of these speaking engagements that that just means these conversations aren't happening in schools right now? Yes and no. Sometimes I feel like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not out there. I'm not doing it. Because the other thing is that what makes me different than a lot of other speakers. So there are amazing, incredible rape crisis centers all over the country, uh, domestic violence centers all over where they have educators. And that's where my career started in this field. I was a victim advocate and an educator where I'd go out to the schools and I talk about, okay, a lot of people don't know what rape crisis centers do. They don't know what domestic violence shelters do. We think of, okay, maybe someone's assaulted, they go to the hospital. Okay. Somebody is experienced domestic violence and they need a, a place to sleep. But these centers do so much more than that. And so I was in the schools and I was educating. And what happened was I was kind of doing scheduling for this one school. And I had a teacher come, you know, like reach out and say, hey, can you do this date? And I said, no, sorry, I'm going to be speaking at a different school that day, but I can get another educator to come for you. And she goes, no, 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 Carly, we want you. Like, we want you specifically. And I was like, Oh, really? And she's like, yeah, like you have a connection with the students that I've never seen before. You make them laugh. You tell stories. You connect with them in a way that I haven't seen that. And it's such a hard topic, right, to talk about. It's so uncomfortable because here's the deal. Like just talking about sex in general is uncomfortable with adults and parents. And right now, imagine talking about forced sex. It makes it even more complicated. And especially when you have someone up standing there saying, hey, don't victim blame. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't when they're doing it already, like whether it is something small is like, well, she was asking for it. And I kind of get into some of my activities a little later. So I know that there's lots of great teachers out there. There's lots of great parents out there. All these organizations are out there and they're teaching this stuff. But One of the things that I've found and that I've kind of changed a little bit of my activism and education is that teens and kids specifically, you know, maybe not the little ones like our guys, uh, but they're online, right? They're looking up this information or they're talking about it. So that's where a lot of the stuff I've uh, been doing in education has been through my Instagram. Like I'm always hopping on my stories, talking about things, posting things, talking about stuff that's uncomfortable, but doing it in a fun way. And I got to tell you, I have so many students, both boys and girls and non-binary kids or kids that kind of identify in the LGBTQ community where they reach out to me and they say, hey, I've never like talked about this stuff with another adult before. So so I know that those conversations are still happening, but I got to tell you, I am itching so hard to get back into, you know, those classrooms, like to physically be with those kids and talk about it. Because the reason I do this work is because I didn't have that. I didn't have that in school. So I'm really excited to get back. So is that what inspired you to start talking about this? Yes, I love you'll love this story. So I will never forget my grandma picked me up from school early one one time and we were driving down the street or someplace and she loves the story. She tells the story all the time. But she was like, Carly, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I think I was maybe like a sophomore in high school. And I told her uh, a motivational speaker. And she was like, what? And it was because that week we had a motivational speaker come into 
my high school to Sherrard and talk to us. And there were actually two speakers and they were awful. <laughs> I just remember sitting there being like, how much did they pay for this? Excuse my French shit. Like, I just remember because one was an NFL player or a former NFL football star. And he came in and he was talking about depression and he talked about mental health. And I remember how he described his um, almost suicide attempt. And we just like, we couldn't relate to him. He was an NFL star. He was huge, right? And he was like talking about his life. And then right after him, it was a former Miss America. And she was beautiful, right? She was just this gorgeous, wonderful woman. And she's standing there and she's talking about how, and I remember this though, because especially being at a school like Sherrard, where we didn't have much diversity, but she was talking about being bullied and then she got over it and then she became Miss America. So it's like, if I can do it, you can do it. And we're all sitting there like with my zit pimply face and my awkward Tina. And I'm like, no. So I just remember sitting there being like, I get what they were trying to do, but I can't relate to them. The messages they were giving were so cheesy and they were so broad. And, and I remember sitting there thinking like, I want to do this, but better. Like I want to motivate people for good. And my grandma was like, well, what do you want to motivate on? And I was like, you know what? I don't know yet. Like, I'm young. I'm going to figure it out. So then when I went off to college and I slowly started experiencing trauma after trauma after trauma and really started to open my eyes. But the main thing, too, was that it was my friends and family that they were sharing their stories of trauma with me as well. And I remember thinking, like, somebody has got to speak up about this. Someone has to talk about this. And we've got to talk about it in a way that's approachable. And so that's when I really started kind of sharing my own stories, really understanding it wasn't my fault, really getting the help I needed through therapy to kind of manage my own mental health and, and traumatic events and things like that. And it just kind of snowballed from that. So I always joke, like I knew when I was young, but I just didn't know quite yet what I wanted to do. I do like the idea that you're identifying, like, I see that you are here to motivate me. I see that you NFL guy, you have a story, but but it's not one that, that I can really grasp what you're telling me. So it's exactly. cool to, you know, to see, you know, that problem and identify the solution in yourself. Can you elaborate on what you mean about seeing and experiencing trauma after trauma after trauma? Sure. For me, it really actually did start in high school. One of the things I always I, I talk about um, with kids, with parents, especially parents and especially moms, is that when I was young, all I wanted was a boyfriend. All I mean, Disney princess, my neighbors, uh, they, they were all older. The babysitters, you know, the, my role models that I looked up to, they all had their boyfriends. And I remember watching TV shows and seeing boyfriends. And, and I just, oh, I wanted a boyfriend. I wanted a partner so bad. And then I got one. And it, and it was bad. It was awful. And you break up and then you get another one and you break up. And, and I had multiple experiences of dating violence. But the thing when you say that phrase dating violence, the first thing that comes to your head is, okay, he, you know, hit me, he punched me, he, he pushed me. And my mom always raised me, no, no, you know, you don't let anyone ever touch you. You don't let anyone ever, ever, you know, hit you or treat you that way. But I wasn't really raised in that sense of what does it mean to be controlling? What does it mean to be manipulative? What does it mean to kind of isolate you from your friends or family? What does it, what does it look like when you're, you're scared to wear a certain thing or do a certain thing? And so for me, it really took me 
years to understand that I was in these dating violent relationships. And when I broke off those relationships and I kind of moved forward, I just found myself another trauma after another. So my freshman year, when I went off to college, we experienced a massive school shooting. So this has been, oh gosh, how many years now? It's, it's always so weird that the, the anniversary of this every year, it's just, it's, it's, the date is longer away, but it still feels like it was yesterday. It's kind of like when I hear people talk about where were you on 9-11? For us, NIU Huskies, it was where were you on 214? And I came from this tiny little small farm town, right? Where nothing quote unquote bad happens, except My senior, I believe it was my senior year, we had an incident where there was a family, a woman who was lit on fire by her, her husband or her ex-husband. And I remember just that story, just completely shock. It it just shocked me that first off, how could someone do that? But how could that happen in my town, right? In my small little farm town where everything was peachy, wonderful. And when we heard sirens, we thought, oh no, I hope, you know, the neighbor didn't have a heart attack or, oh, I hope, you know, the, the house isn't on fire. And so once I went off to college and I really experienced life outside of the small farm town, and it was more of, of sexual harassment. There was more of, unfortunately, being assaulted sexually assaulted by one of my best friends. And then also it was just hearing story after story after story of my friends and family who I never knew that they were victims of child sexual abuse. I didn't know that this person had this, but what I found is the more I shared my story, it gave courage and bravery for others to share theirs. And that is kind of when I started developing this, you know, and I I joke with people that I've been saying me too for 10 years now, right? Before that movement came out. And so, but again, it also goes back to a lot of speakers in my field, a lot of my really close friends who do this work, they have like one big story. Like one of my friends, she was kidnapped and sexually assaulted. And she now has a national organization. Another one, um, she has a law named after her because she had horrific child sexual abuse. You know, I know people who their families, um, sisters, uh, mothers were killed to this violence. And here I'm just this everyday girl, everyday victim from Sherrard, Illinois, from the good old Quad Cities. And, and I couldn't relate to those people. So then when I started going out to schools and speaking and sharing my stories and kids were saying, oh my gosh, that happened to me. This happens to me. This happened to me. It it was finally giving people someone they could relate to and talk to openly about those things. And that's kind of where that direction of uh, not just my speaking career, right, as that quote unquote motivational speaker, but really finding a topic and issues that were dear to my heart, but that also I'm an expert in where where I studied. I worked at this uh, rape crisis center. I have hundreds and hundreds of hours of training. And that's one of the big things um, I'm kind of ranting here, but a, a big thing people always reach out to me and they say, hey, how can I share my story? And I always tell them first, take care of yourself before you try to take care of others. Right. Um, but absolutely anyone can share their story and make a change. You don't have to have one big story. And that's where I kind of uh, like that focus on too. So much to unpack there. I want to start with If you could just go back to that day on the campus of NIU, I remember that because I was living in Wichita, Kansas at the time, and um, I was working at a station down there and everyone kept going, you know, what's, what's Northern Illinois? And I'm like, Northern Illinois is where I'm from, you know? And so it, it felt like this thing was happening 
you know, not back at home, so to speak, but when you're in Kansas and, you know, right, nobody else so knows Illinois, it did, it did feel like home at that time. You lost a friend in that shooting. Yes. And I think the worst, the, the worst part about it was that my friend Gail, who was killed, I met her through a Bible study. Like she was just the most innocent, sweetest, down to earth, most wonderful, wonderful young woman. And, and my friend Chris who was also in that class, he skipped class that day so he could go drinking because it was Thirsty Thursday and he survived. And so that was something that I struggled a lot with because I was super religious. I was a Catholic altar server, uh, like I was your girl next door, right, growing up. And so, I mean, it really rocked so many things, uh, what safety meant to me, what home meant to me. Um, and, And two, being away from home. So, you know, DeKalb is about an hour and a half from the Quad Cities. Um, and Sherrard, where I grew up, is is so small. Everyone knew everyone there, right? And I'll never forget, um, like a week or two after the event, I went home for a baby shower. And I was sitting there at a table, you know, with people I knew. I know, you know, you know everyone. Um, but they didn't know I went to NIU. And it got brought up and they were just like talking about the shooting and how terrible it was. And, and I just had to get up and walk away because I remember I was, I just relived it in my head. And for me, what happened was I was on campus. I was in uh, an art class and, and typically what happens usually when bad news hits, it's one person got a text message that said, Hey, there's a gunman loose on campus. And then another, another student got a text message that said, um, there's somebody shooting up in the library. And then we got, and then that's somebody else. And so then pretty soon my professor got up and she went into the office and they were already in lockdown. Nobody had come to tell us it was just chaos. Nobody knew what was going on. So we locked the door. We turned off the lights. We sat, we waited, we waited. We looked outside the windows and we could see helicopters everywhere. And I'll I'll never forget calling my dad because I knew he'd be the one person to answer right away. And I said, I don't know what you're going to see on TV, but I'm fine. I'm safe for, for now. I'll keep you posted. And so he went off and, and told my family, but then, um, a little Gosh, while after for your dad to get that up. phone call though, even. Wow. Oh yeah. Just, just to say like, Hey dad, there's a shooting. And, and, and now as a parent, like, can you even imagine? No, no. And, 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 and the thing too, is where going back to that, like growing up in a community where we didn't lock our doors at night, right. We'd leave our car running when we went into the gas station. It was, it was just so terrifying and that unknown of, I don't know what's going on. And so finally we got a knock at the door and it was a police officer and they said, you know, the event is done. We're, we're going to escort you back. And so the, I think for me, the most surreal part of that was walking through campus. Everyone was being let out. So they were walking people to their cars or they were walking people to their dorms. And so my friends and I, we were walking across campus and we're like, what's going on? What's going on? And then I'll never forget seeing the actual building where the shooting had occurred and there's ambulance everywhere. There's people in stretchers, there's blood everywhere, uh, walking into. And I think that was one thing that, that when you're, you're looking for people too, you're thinking, okay, who had class here? Who, who have I, have I not seen yet? Who am I texting? Because you have the entire 20,000 student population trying to text and trying to find each other and calls were off and it was just so chaotic. And I will never forget walking into the dorm room. Uh, One of my friends 
um, who like lived on the floor, him walking past me covered in blood and looking at the CNN TV up on our, you know, in our little common area. And like, that was the building that I was physically currently standing in. And, and remember though, too, at times, even joking about it, like, oh my God, we're like, this is, it's Columbine, it's Virginia Tech, it's this, we like, we were so shocked and up and down and up and down. And I remember going on Facebook and saying, I'm safe, I'm okay. It was so chaotic and scary. And then not getting that call until later that night that my friend Gail was killed. And again, you just kind of think that, and this is a really big thing that I teach on and I do in my public speaking and education is that how many times have you ever thought, nah, that won't happen to me, right? Not me. A million, yeah. A million, that won't happen to my kid. That won't happen to, right, a million. And I can sit here and I can tell you all the traumatic events that have happened in my life or the stories that have happened in my close friends and family's life were the same. They thought, no, that can't happen, but it can, it does. And it's so important that we prepare for it. And we also know what to do after that event happens, because I have a diagnosed chronic PTSD, chronic meaning from multiple events. So one of the things that I do is even though I wasn't in that room, and this is a really good example of how sometimes traumatic events can affect one person differently than the, the other. So one of my really close best friends, she was in the classroom with me and I am 10 times more affected by that than she was. Somebody who grew up closer to the city, who grew up in a bigger city, uh, someone where I lost a friend, she didn't. But when I walk into a large auditorium, at times I picture the event in my head. I think about my friend and how she was shot. And, and I know, sorry, this can be triggering, you know, maybe for some listening, but it's amazing how one event can be different for people across the board. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge the way that it made you feel and it still makes you feel, yes. particularly because, you know, when I talk to moms about all kinds of different things on this podcast, you wouldn't believe how many times I hear, but somebody else had it worse. Yeah, yes. sure. I had three miscarriages, but somebody else probably had four. And I think yep. that's a very mom mindset where we decide that our feelings don't count because yep. somebody else had it worse. And exactly. I think it's so important to acknowledge that this is how I feel and this is how something impacts me without feeling the guilt of that. Yeah, exactly. And so that was one thing within the shooting, within my dating violence relationships, um, and especially with my rape. That was something where I thought, oh, no, my sexual assault wasn't that bad. Um, you know, he didn't he didn't hit me hard or he didn't, you know, do this or that. People have a way worse. Like, no, no, no. But looking back at that and processing that and the things that I tell other survivors, absolutely, absolutely didn't mean everything to me at that time and still does. So your feelings are valid. And even though one thing might affect you different than someone else, it doesn't mean you're wrong. Do you remember that first time when maybe you started kind of dabbling in sharing your story? And do you remember just really deciding, like, I'm going to go for this and see, yep. like, test the waters a little bit? What do you remember yeah. about that? Well, and I, and I always bring up this story, too, because I want survivors and people to know that if you share your story and it doesn't feel good the first time, keep trying. When I first told my story of my sexual assault to someone, and at the time I didn't know it was sexual assault. At the time I said, hey, this is what happened. My friend got me drunk. He used me for sex. 
this, 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 this. And I had a friend say to me, Carly, that's rape. And I was like, no, 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 it's not like, no, he didn't, you know, he didn't hit me or pin me down or like, you know, I'm not that type of girl. Like I'd fight back if it was rape. Like I'd, I'd go to the police, right. If it was rape. And I really do actually appreciate him because he just said, oh, okay. Okay. And he didn't push it anymore. And then a few months later, like a few months of like really sitting with that and really seeing where my mental health was, where my physical health was, you know, I, I stopped going to class. I would stay up really late and then I would sleep in. I wasn't eating. I wasn't showering. I wasn't uh, reaching out to my family. You know, I wasn't asking for help. And then finally, I, I kind of got that courage to tell my story to just a friend, another really close one of my best friends. And the first thing she said to me was, are you sure? You know, like, are you sure he wouldn't do that? Like, are you sure that's what happened? So what am I thinking? Oh my gosh. Like, did that happen? Right. Or maybe, yeah, he wouldn't do that to me. Right. And then I pushed it down. I pushed it down. And then I will never forget one of my very first kind of activism storytelling events I ever went to. And this is, I love telling the story because this is where I really got my, my work started. It's, are you familiar with the event? Take back the night. Yes. Have you ever heard of that? Okay, yes, great. Yep. So I went to my very first take back the night at NIU. And it was so funny because I was somebody in high school that was like, Ugh, feminist, we can work. What do we need? You know, we're, we're equal rights. Like they're crazy. You know, and I'd make jokes like women belong in the kitchen. And I'd, you know, I would do all these things. And I, I had this really close friend who was president of the Women's Rights Alliance. And she was like, please just like come to this event with me. Like we need more support. So I was like, okay, fine. So I went. And I remember listening to the keynote speaker. And again, their story was a little a little out there. And when I say out there, a little just like, oh my gosh, wow, that's so unbelievable. But then one of my favorite things in this realm of work that I do is survivor speakouts. So at the very end of the event, after we marched through the town and we yelled, you know, my body, my rules, or um, I mean, I could do all the chant. <laughs> They're my favorite. But we ended with anyone, anyone could stand up and tell their story. I just remember standing there listening to all these people get up and tell their story and just being like, wow, the bravery, the courage. And also, oh my God, that happened to me. And that happened to me. And that happened to me. And me too. And again, me too, me too, right? This was 10 years before me too. And so finally, I, I just went up there I got up there and I shared a little bit of my story and it felt incredible and amazing. And I remember thinking, this is what I want to do. This is, this is the stuff I want to do. And then fast forward a year later, I'm standing on this huge platform in the Daily Center in downtown Chicago during a giant, it's called Slut Walk, another kind of activism um, walk. And I'm sharing my story again, but this time it's in front of a crowd of almost 600 people. Again, it like once you do it, like, or have, you, have you ever started a hobby? Um, like, for example, I've been rock climbing lately, like indoor rock oh, climbing. Cool. <laughs> so cool. So fun. Right. And it's something I did years and years ago, but just got into it and like feeling empowered and it made me feel good. And now I'm like, OK, let's like I don't want to stop this. Right. It's like that adrenaline that like. But really, the best part about it was one after I shared that story, it was connecting with those other people. 
who had shared their stories or connecting with the people who didn't feel quite comfortable yet. Because one thing you'll understand from my personality, if you haven't already, like I'm a very outgoing person. I was in county fair pageants, right? I was in drama, dance, like I don't have a shy bone in my body, which made made it a little easier for me to get up and, and do this work. But at the same time, you don't have to be a crazy extrovert to share your stories. Right. Yeah. Because it is, it's you, it's in your bones at this point. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. If you don't mind me asking, I'm curious now that you're more vocal about your story, what happened to that friend? Does he know that this is how you view that situation and that it was not okay? Actually, not only was he my friend, but he was my roommate, but this is an activity I do in the high schools. I do it in the colleges and I actually do this with adults. I've done this with military groups as well. So what I do is, as I tell the story of, of two friends, okay. Or, you know, their roommates and we'll call them Elizabeth and Kevin and Elizabeth and Kevin, really great friends. It's the summer. One of them, you know, just broke up with her boyfriend. He just broke up with his girlfriend. They're hanging out. They're getting to know each other and they end up hooking up one one night they were drinking they were kind of you know but but it was consensual it was you know probably a mistake if they're living together and in a vulnerable time right but but really it was consensual everything's fine so then later that week things are going well she's kind of thinking maybe they're gonna date or at least she kind of like you know feels safe with him and then one night they're watching watching a movie hanging out and Kevin turns to Elizabeth and says hey do you want another drink And she goes, no, I'm fine. Like, I've had enough. I'm already pretty tipsy. And he's just like, come on, just, you know, just one more. And she's like, no, really? I don't want any more. And he's like, come on. Like, I bought this bottle of peach schnapps just for you. Like, come on. And she's like, no, okay, you know what? All right, fine. Just one more drink. So they pause the movie. Kevin gets up, goes into the room, or excuse me, the kitchen. And she's watching him, just sitting there waiting. And she sees him pour three shots into her drink. And she's thinking like, is he trying to get me drunk? Like that's a lot of booze for that one small drink. And she kind of just like pushes it out of her mind, like whatever, whatever. So he comes back and hands her the drink and she takes a drink and it's pretty strong. Like she can, she can, you know, she can taste that, but she just ignores it. They watch the movie, they cuddle, they finish, finish drinking, finish the movie. And she says, okay, you know what? I'm going to go to bed now. And he goes, well, why don't you come downstairs with me and cuddle, you know, and, and she's like, well, I don't want to do anything. And he's like, yeah, we don't have to do anything. We'll just cuddle. Like, let's just cuddle, go to bed. And she's like, okay, okay. I'd like that. So again, at this point, she's pretty, pretty drunk. And he kind of, you know, helps her, carries her, helps her down the stairs. Um, they get in his bed and they cuddle up and she's feeling safe and secure and, and really tired. And again, pretty drunk. And then all of a sudden he starts to touch her. And she doesn't like this. And so she pushes, you know, his hand away. And then like a minute later, he does it again. And so she pushes his hand away. And on the third try, he gets a little more aggressive, right? She tries to push that hand away, but then he crawls on top of her and has sex with her. So what I do, and I, and I share this story a lot better. I haven't done this in a while, um, but I ask the, the students or the audience or whoever it might be. I say, okay, raise your hand if you think this was rape. All the hands go up. Because before in this little activity, what I do is kind of like what your question was. Okay, so let's talk about like terms like, okay, what's rape versus sexual assault? So they're actually the same thing. And this is where when you hear the term sexual violence, that's an umbrella term. 
So for example, um, when I was a freshman in at, at good old Sherrard, we went on a band trip or no, I'm sorry. It was a choir trip. We went to New York. Long story short, we're on the bus. We're bored. It's been 24 hours. We're waving at cars, you know, and, and someone goes, oh, my God, it's Bruce Willis. And we like look over and it wasn't Bruce. It was just some bald guy, whatever. But we're <laughs> waving at this dude, you know, and, and most of us like just get sick of him. And then someone screams, oh, my God, it's his penis. And we all look over and this man is masturbating in front of us. So we're screaming and freaking out and, you know, right. But that right there, that's voyeurism. That's sexual violence. He, we weren't even in the same room, right? He never touched any of us. But can you imagine if I said to someone like mom or teacher or whatever, like this just happened and they said to me, oh, well, at least he didn't touch you, right? Like at least it wasn't rape. Going back to that, like, oh, well, people have had it worse. So that's an example of sexual violence under that umbrella term. Same with rape and sexual assault is that penetration of the body. So another story I share with people is long story short, I was on the L. So I used to live in Chicago. I was on the L crammed in like sardines on the red line going to a Cubs game. And my boyfriend at the time was standing behind me. And I just like feel him grab my my ass like really hard. And I look and I was like, what is that? What was that for? And he's like, what are you talking about? And then we look over and a guy had just gotten off of the platform and was giving me this like really dirty, nasty look. And I just was like, oh, my gosh, like, oh, like, right. Like he touched me, but he didn't do it under the clothes. Right. He, there was no penetration. That's still sexual violence. Right. And so how do you think the rest of my day went? Right. Did I enjoy that game? No. But now no. I have to look, you know, maybe I looked back or we made jokes about it just to kind of to ease the situation. But but going back to so when I ask kids or adults, you know, is that rape? Everyone's like, yes. Like, did he get consent? No. And even though she's never said the word no or stop, did she make it clear she didn't want to have sex? And most of the kids will say, yeah, like, right, push the hand away, did all this stuff. So we really get into this really great conversation. But then this is where it gets it gets tricky. And I ask and I say, OK, let's talk about whose fault this is. So raise your hand if you think 100 percent completely Kevin's fault. He raped her. And you'll like get a couple, you know, or raise your hand if you think Elizabeth did a few things that maybe she shouldn't have or things that you think led this to happen that makes it her fault. And so everyone puts their hand up for her. And typically in an average classroom, I'll get someone who will say things like, oh, she's so stupid, right? Like, like, what are the things? So what do you think? What do you, what do you think the things are that kids say that she should have done differently? I mean, you could go as far back as not drinking the drink when yep, she exactly. knew that something was wrong with the drink. You, she should have known that he didn't just want to cuddle. You don't go exactly. into a guy's bed and just yep. cuddle with her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's, she was leading him on, right? I hear that a lot. Oh yes. Or um, she saw him pour those drinks into her drink, right? Didn't do anything about it. She did this. She did that. You know, she blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I'll always get that kid or that adult or someone saying she was asking for it, right? She was asking for it. And then Bless their little hearts. I usually have like one or two students, adults, someone who says, no, like, no, it was completely his fault. And then I say, you know what? I agree with you, but I'm going to tell you, it took me years, years to really come to that understanding. 
And I say, because I am Elizabeth, like that, that's my middle name. And this is my story. And I know I kind of like gave it away in the beginning, but the jaws just completely drop. Right. Because the, here's the deal. When you put a real life survivor in front of a group of people, it changes. So just like one of the things I focus on with cyberbullying or cyber harassment is that we can sit behind a keyboard, we can say all these mean, terrible things to people or about people, but then when you put a person, and this is why I really miss that in-person connection. It's so much different when you're physically standing in front of these people and I tell them my story, my rape story. And the difference is I can stand here and I can tell you why I took that drink. Why? Because I'm a fun drunk. Like I thought he, that's college, right? That's like what we did. He, like, I thought he was like trying to get me drunk. Okay, cool. What did I give consent to? It was cuddling. I wanted to cuddle. We, yeah. And then people will bring up, and if you've noticed, you know, I mentioned that where we had hooked up before, right? So people say, well, you know, they did it before then why? Okay. So that means every, you know, that person is just allowed my body whenever they want it? No. So, so we really get into that stuff. And, and a big thing too, is I, I can stand there and I can tell them that this is why I didn't fight back. This is why I did do this. This is why, this is why. And I'm really putting them in my shoes. And that story and that activity is so powerful because I go from something really serious into something really funny where I bring up um, my TED talk which I asked the kids. So, you know, we get into this really big discussion. We talk about victim blaming and consent and all of this stuff. And I love doing it with the older kids because I can really get into things about like masturbation and kids bring up like blue balls, you know, and stuff like that. And this is, and actually I'm going to share this. This is my favorite because I'll usually get a guy that says like, you know, you know, like she's leading him on blue balls. That's a thing. And, and they'll be like, you know, I can't. And I'm like, okay, can you control your body? And they're like, no, no. And I say, okay, so mom and dad walk in on you having sex. You're going to be like, mom, hold on. I got to finish. Like I can't. Right. So, <laughs> right. so that's where that humor comes in. Right. You're talking yeah. with like teens and young adults about awkward, uncomfortable stuff. So let's make it real. Let's have some fun. I'll throw in a, a few curse words, right. To, to sound a little, not cool, but just to relate with them. Right. And so, right. so then I, I get real serious and I say, okay, now let me ask you, raise your hand if you've ever pooped your pants. And then I go into what my TEDx talk is about where I, Carly Johnson, prom queen of 2007 Shard High School, pooped my pants in the hallway, but I didn't tell anyone, right? I didn't ask for help. I didn't, I didn't tell this story until I was on a national stage. But the idea behind it is that it's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable, but it was out of my control. It wasn't my fault. And it happened to so many people. Denise, I cannot tell you how many people message me their pooped their pants stories. <laughs> right? You're like, I'm glad we connected on this level. Yes. yes. And then it follows with, they're victim stories. So I get messages from strangers, from people, from, from all over where they finally feel comfortable talking with someone about that. And that's my goal. That's my thing of where just connecting, sharing stories, having some fun with it too, a little bit, but also then still understanding how serious this topic is and how many people are affected by it. It speaks directly to what you said earlier about the NFL guy and yes. the pageant queen which yep. was they brought the story, but they never opened the door. They never laid out these little welcome mats of the poop story to say exactly. like, 
we can we can connect on these little funny things right. to really get that point across. Yeah, because there's, I'm telling you, every single one of our listeners right now, they've at least peed themselves a little bit, right? Or oh, moms, no, especially. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm still going through that. But but the idea behind it is we can all connect on a, an event on something that was out of our control that we felt belittled or victimized or something, right? Some Something has happened where we think, oh my gosh, like, like not me, how could this happen to me? And if we can all connect and come together, it's going to make the healing process so much easier. Just back to my original question really quickly. Sure. Have you connected again with that friend oh, now yeah, that you're ta- right, telling right. the truth about what happened? And, and so the funny thing about it, about that is that I lived with him for an entire year after that event happened. And there were days when, when I thought, oh my gosh, I hate him. He's a monster. This was terrible. And then there were other days where I'm like, no, this is, and I hate saying it out loud, but, but this is something else that I've really connected with a lot of victims on is that because when we think of the term rapist, right, or domestic abuser or whoever it might be, we think this terrible, mean, nasty, terrible, awful, gross guy. Now, again, females can be perpetrators as well. But the thing about it was, is that's what I struggled with for so long. And he knows I do this work. He knows that, um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm internationally known for this. And I'm telling this story all over the country. Um, and, and he has apologized to me and he apologized um, pretty close after the event happened. And there's a whole thing. I mean, forgiveness is a whole topic we can talk about, right? Uh, Anyone um, can talk about that. But the idea behind it is that he, just like I'm your everyday victim, there are everyday perpetrators. And I need everyone to understand this too, that one of the big reasons that the victims don't come forward or we don't believe victims is because we think, no, no, my brother couldn't do that. My husband couldn't do that. My friend couldn't do that. My No, they're nice guys. And that is why I do this work is because there are evil, terrible, awful people in the world, right? And then there are people who are trying to get their power back and they're taking power and control away from others. And they're doing that and they're hurting people and they're getting away with it. And so one of the things we need to do is hold our perpetrators accountable, but we also need to show people and kids why they're doing these things. To me, it's just as important to get to the perpetrators and the boys and, and the young ones who are the bullies, right? The, the things that we see, same with bullying. And we can talk and talk about bullying um, forever. But another thing, too, is I am currently going through a divorce right now, the separation, and realizing that you could be an expert in your field, right? You can be someone who talks to to millions of people all over, but this stuff can still affect you and it can still follow you. And so looking back at my marriage, he was controlling and abusive, and he admits that. Do I think he's a terrible, awful person? Maybe sometimes, right? But overall, no. And people, some people have these tendencies, but does it make them an abuser 24-7? No. And that's the stuff we really need to break down as well. I know I kind of went on a tangent with that. Because of what I do, I'm in the news biz. 
I see so much of both sides. You know what I mean? You yep. hear this side and that side, you know, the biggest thing I, that came to my head right off the bat was the Brett Kavanaugh story. And there is two, yes. the Supreme Court justice. And, you know, the two camps are, she didn't tell yep. anybody. She didn't, you know, she didn't have anybody to back up the story. And then, you know, his side was, he has all these diaries. He never wrote it down. He did it it's like the big controversy was, do we believe all women? Do we believe in due process? Do we yep. believe in a mixture of the two? And quite frankly, we still haven't figured that out because exactly. we have women coming forward about Governor Cuomo at the moment. Yeah. We have yeah. a woman who came forward about our now president, Joe Biden, and yeah. we still have not figured out how we wanna handle these situations, yeah. you know? And this is what Absolutely. you're out speaking about every day and we like, on a national level, we can't figure this thing out. <laughs> exactly. We're still we're still figuring it out. And I will tell you one thing. Any time a story comes forward, and this is just because of my experiences, um, and and two, as somebody where where I have a master's degree and studied statistics and prevention education and and all of these things where I have been working with in this field and with victims for for many 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 years. I will always believe the victim first because I will never forget going back to my story. I will never forget that feeling when I told my best friend what had happened and her saying, are you sure he wouldn't do that and doubting myself and the harm that that caused. And so even, and I really want our listeners to kind of think about that for a second. If somebody comes forward and they say, Hey, this happened to me, this person did this. And you're thinking, no, no way. Keep that thought in your head, right? And this is what I wrap up every presentation, everything um, when I do in a speaking engagement is, all right, I'm coming to you. I just shared that story. So back to my story, I'm crawling out of that bed. I am in shock. I have, I know what happened, but I also don't know what happened. And I go and I'm drunk and I go up to my room and I lay in my bed and, and all I want to hear from someone, you know, I call up my best friend what do you think I want to hear? Like, what are some things that you might think that a survivor or somebody in a, in a tough situation like that would want to hear? You know, I do this thing where we talk about empathy. Think of a time in your life where you just wanted someone to talk to and you went, went to a friend and you said, hey, this happened to me. And they're like, oh, gosh, I remember when my boyfriend did this and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, that's the worst. <laughs> yeah, thanks. OK, let's make this about you. Right. Or. You go to someone and you're like, hey, this is, you know, this happened. And they're like, well, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do this? And, you know, like, well, why didn't you do this? Right. We have that controlling person that's like, and they're trying to help. Right. How many of you have partners or husbands or whoever that they're like problem solvers? This is kind of like a stereotypical oh, yeah. joke of like, oh, you know, but but really, I just I need someone to hear me and listen to me. And the first thing that I needed to hear was that I believe you. I believe that this happened to you because I want everyone to look back at every single celebrity or person who's been accused. The biggest example I love to give is Bill freaking Crosby. Look at him. He was convicted. He, it was proven. He, he was a national treasure of family friendly. During that time, he was assaulting multiple women, multiple women, and a lot of women who I know too. And and can you imagine them coming forward? No, Bill Cosby, no, right? Right? We look at things like um, 
Sandusky. I mean, we I mean, we could sit here and talk about so many people who have been accused and prosecuted for those things. And so going back to hearing, I believe you, even if you don't, right, even if in the back of your head you're doubting, but I believe you, I'm here for you. Like, how many times do we just want to hear that when we have a bad day, right? A rough day at work, our kids are screaming or yelling or whatever it might be. Like, just having someone say, hey, I'm here for you and I'm going to help you get through this. And also that last one, the biggest thing I needed to hear was it is not your fault. I could have done everything right. I could have, right? I could have said no to the drinking. I could have done this. I could. He still could have raped me. We will never know that. But. The question I ask everyone is always if Kevin and Elizabeth, right, or if Kevin and myself were, if he wasn't in that room with me, would I have been raped? No. No. Right. And people are always like, what? Like, no. But if he was not in that room, I would not have been assaulted. So who caused that to happen? Whose fault was that, that this event occurred? And it's always the perpetrator. So that's Mm -hmm. one of the biggest things I encourage everyone at some point in your life, someone is going to come forward. They're going to say something that, that this happened, whether it's sexual violence, domestic violence, bullying, and, and parents, especially right. Moms, especially our kids coming forward and saying something. The best thing you can say is I believe you, I'm here for you. And this is not your fault. That's a good message, but okay. Then here I am sitting here as, um, the mother of Kevin. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going, well, he didn't, he didn't mean that he's interpreting her signs. Like, how do we, how do we do better? How do we raise a better Kevin? Good. good. So let's talk about that because um, one of the biggest things I I give, so what are some things that we can teach? I mean, we're talking young, right? My son is two, he's going to be three in April. So one of the, some of the biggest things that I teach when I say the word consent, what do you think of? What does that mean? Yes or no. Good. Okay. So now let's break that down even further because I'm going to ask you, what were some forces that Kevin used on me? So we talk about consent and you look up the legal definition. People always say permission, permission, permission. Okay. So if I give an example, I say, um, let's say that I'm in high school and my I'm, I'm sexting my boyfriend, right? So he says to me, if you don't have sex with me, I'm going to share these nudes all over the, all over school. And I say, okay, fine. Did I want to do that? No, no. Why? He was forcing me because it could be, you know, for a number of reasons. I don't want people to see me naked. Um, I created child pornography. I could get in trouble as well. Right. All of these things. So I say, yes. Okay, fine. That's permission, right? That's, that's saying yes. That's okay. Yes means yes. But was that freely given? No, no. The definition of consent in the state of Illinois is a freely given yes without any forces. So going back to that story with Kevin, what were some things that he did to kind of trick me? Well, the alcohol, number one. Huge. So alcohol. Um, Yeah. But number two, I think the bigger one was the the illusion of safety. The the I'm here and we're cuddling and this is this is a safe place. You know, yes. I think we've all been in that situation before where you go, no, 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 this, this is safe. Yep. 
This is good. And that is something, a big thing I teach with parents too, of what grooming looks like. So parents in schools, everyone's like, yeah, stranger danger. Let's talk about that. Human trafficking, the scary, you know, terrible, awful things. Like, um, I know there was like human sex trafficking was like weirdly popular um, over the, I think it was like the summer. There was lots of hashtags and things going on. And then us advocates were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, yeah, this is all terrible and stuff. But y'all, the people who are abusing your children are the people that you know that they feel safe with and they're taking advantage of that. So Kevin- That's why I hate all those posts that are like, I swear that guy side-eyed us at Target and followed us around. I'm like, you might've gotten a weird vibe, but that's not human trafficking, sis. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Those drive me crazy. I know. And, and I like, I, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Like, you know, that fear. Um, but no, that's not, that's not where it's happening. It's that taking advantage of. So I had just broken up with my boyfriend, right? He had broken up with, with his girlfriend. So he used that. And that since that whole week, he'd buy me lunch, he'd buy me dinner, we'd hang out more. He listened to me like, you know, all of these things to build that trust. And then if you notice with the, with the alcohol, I still to this day cannot have peach schnapps, right? He, I wasn't 21 yet. So he, and he was so he went out bought my favorite bottle of booze and then what did he do he guilted me into taking another drink right Mm -hmm. so we've got manipulation through that safety we've got guilt then using physical forces and so there's all of these different forces that even though and and I and I always hate this phrase another phrase I'd love to you know kind of reclaim is that like I laid there and took it I never hit him. I never punched back. I never screamed. I never yelled. I never scratched him. I was so scared. And this is such a good analogy for somebody who grew up in Gerard um, is the deer in the headlights. <laughs> like how many times I, and I ask kids this and adults, how many times did something happen when you should have done something and you didn't because you were either in shock or you were scared. And that's what I tell people. You do not know what a person, everyone thinks of like when I was at that school, that shooting in that classroom, when I was walking across campus, when I, I mean, all of my traumas and experiences and little things that have happened in my life where I just stood there and froze. You think you're going to do something. And this is why I am such a big um, advocate for gun, um, common sense gun control too. People think, okay, I've got my gun and I'm going to self-defense and I'm going to do all these things. And what, but you do not know how you would react until you're in that traumatic situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's another thing where even though if they don't fight or scream still doesn't make them their fault. Right. Hmm. So going back to, you know, we're instead of raising Kevin's. Okay. What are these things? So forces. So one of the big things that I teach my son with consent is that, um, and, and, and really giving him his power too. So a big thing, and I'm sure you've heard this or seen this when we go to family events, I never force him to hug relatives if he doesn't want to. Yeah. That's been more of a conversation as of late. Yep. Like, I really want you to think about this. If like, let's say you're dating someone, right? So I am newly divorced, single dating someone. And let's say I bring my new boyfriend home to my parents and I say, okay, you got to go and kiss them. Like, like, no, no, never. you would never do that. Right. Like, and if, and if my, you know, if a boyfriend or someone said that, to, I'd be like, no, screw you. Like, I'm not, are you kidding me? So why is it different for kids? Um, right. And again, right. Kids do not have control over their own lives. They need to have control over their bodies. Now there's, there's limits, right? We're potty training. Oh, wish me luck. Um, but little things like tickling, 
when um, I, I always ask, can I hold your hand? Can I hug you? Can I? So really getting your kids to be asking for consent anytime physical touch and not just physical touch. I do this a lot with borrowing items or, you know, interrupting. That's a really great one with kids. But but really letting him have power and control over his physical body, but also asking. It's just as important to reciprocate. Like how many times do you remember like growing up and it was like, don't do drugs. We weren't taught not to pressure kids. <laughs> we weren't taught the skills, right? Or how to speak up for ourselves. So as somebody who studied communication, I'm a communication adjunct teacher professor. Communication is the most important thing that I say for parents. Really practice what you preach. Really try to get your kids um, practicing to get consent for things. And that's the other yeah. thing about it is that really understanding kids and adults all the time are like, oh, that's, that's not sexy. That it's a mood killer during a call. You know, I'm not doing this in the high schools or the junior highs, but at a high school, like I'll like walk up to a guy and I'll be like, you know, can I kiss? Like, like it can't be sexy. It is. Consent is such a beautiful, wonderful thing. And it's just like something like pronouns, right? Or other things that when we're taught differently, sometimes it takes a while to break those habits, but it's something we got to do. Well, I mean, I'm listening to a podcast the other day and it was like kind of a current events sort of a podcast and the host made a joke that was like, you know, I'm just going to have to send my son to college with forms and he's going to have to get the form signed. And it's sort of like, it was sort of like a tee hee hee, you know, big joke, but like, but no, really like how, yeah. So (laughs) I know. So one of the examples I give, I give with that form too, where, um, where I say, okay, like sign this, sign this off. And then the second after they sign, they sign it, start yelling at him, make him feel uncomfortable, that kind of stuff. So like, even that joke is lame. But, but the idea too, is why would you want to do that without someone's consent? That's the other thing we have to get in people's head is that it's not like a a bad, awful topic. It's like, why would you not want to engage with somebody who doesn't want to do those or wants to do those things, if that makes sense. So it's really like teaching people how to ask, how to say no, how to like speak up for yourself. But also, let me ask you this. How many times have you been approached by a male or someone else? You felt uncomfortable. And instead of saying no, you said, oh, well, I have a boyfriend or gave a fake number, or mm-hmm. you did something out of your own safety. Yeah. That's another thing too. That when- Or broadcasters who wear wedding rings just to not be yes. bothered. Mm-hmm. That's yes. a very common thing in the industry. Yep. I have like, a just friend- keep that ring on the finger. Yep. Just, yep. I have a friend fine. in St. Louis who's a broadcaster who she's just beautiful and wonderful and gets nasty, terrible thing. I'm sure you've experienced this. And so, I mean, little things like that where- it's, it, it shouldn't be up to us. It sh- we really need to teach rejection. That's another thing that I talk about. Um, and this isn't just for boys. This is for girls as well, because I can't tell you how many times, too. It's not just about raising Kevins. It's about raising those Karens, too, <laughs> of how do we teach girls to do the same thing? Because I hear story after story after story of boys being in domestic violent dating relationships, but they don't know what to do because they're a boy and they're told to suck it up or they're told, no, you're supposed to like this sex stuff. Like you're supposed to, right? And so it's it's a universal tool from age literally until they start talking 
until our deathbeds. Consent is so important. And that's what I will be preaching until the day I die. (laughs) Well, and that's one thing that drives me crazy when I watch The Bachelor. And The Bachelor has a whole mess of problems. But it drives me crazy. And it happened many times this season where because there are the 25 women and the woman is trying to stand out to this one man, she's extremely sexually aggressive with him. Many of them come out of the car and start making out with him. And, you know, he's supposed to like it, you know, because she's so confident in herself and she, you know, she's so sexy and he should pick her because she's just the sexiest fun and the most available and whatever. And it drives me bonkers because we don't want to be treated like that. Exactly. Stop treating them like that. Exactly. And, I, and over and over again, the show shows that. And it, yep. and it drives me crazy because these are young 22, 23 year old women who are told to lead sexy, give him what you already know he wants. Yep. And, and that's the thing too. I have, I've worked with male victims and I, I shared this story too, where we had a college student once where he was at a party. There was a chick that was like trying to get with him just like that, right. All night. And he had, you know, enough to drink. He went to his room and he woke up and she was performing oral sex on him. And so I asked once again, is that rape? And everyone's like, and I'm like, yeah, yes, it is. That's penetration of the body that was not wanted. And her response was, I thought you wanted this. I thought all guys want this. Did she ever get consent from him? No. And in fact, he made it clear to her that he was not interested. And so she waited and took advantage of him. And the deal is, again, similar with my story. The first time he told his friends, his friends were like, dude, you got a BJ. Like, that's amazing. Like, why are you complaining? But then similar thing where it was, he just, he couldn't stop thinking about it. He was uncomfortable. And then finally he reached out to get services, to get counseling. Mm-hmm. And so I share that story because I also want men um, to know that if something like that happens to you, that is not your fault. And it's still okay for you to report that person. And that person is a rapist. That person, that was assault. And so anyways, there's just so many, so many issues that go that go with this that people don't really think about right and it takes a unique spin to get talking about it right awareness is the first thing and also skill building so it's one thing and this is what sets me apart from a lot of speakers and educators is there's a lot of speakers that just share their story they get up on that stage or microphone or in front of a classroom and they say this is what happened to me don't rape it's not your fault Mic drop. See ya. Right. (laughs) But what we need to do is we really need to teach tangible skills. I really want people to start to practice to ask for consent. So some of my friends and family think I'm funny and crazy and and I've tamed it down a little for certain people. But I ask every single time, can I hug you? It's just like my pull string. If there was a doll, it would be like, you know, I have asthma and and bad allergies. It'd be like, hand me a Kleenex and can I can I hug you (laughs) like I, it's just something that has naturally come out of my brain. And I will tell everyone who's listening to this too, that when I was younger, I used to say really bad curse words, things like, like the R word. I used to use the word retarded all the time. Even like saying that out of my lips, like hurt. Um, And now I'm a huge advocate on that and, and certain words. So also things like if I hear someone say, oh, I got raped on that test. No, 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 you didn't. Because my assault and what that has done to me as a person is nowhere near what that test has done to you. So mm-hmm. little things like that, too. And 
yeah, it can take a lot to really kind of look at the way rape culture, how we're raised and, and kind of what you were going back to of where women and young girls are taught to be sexy and we have to do, you know, all of these things. So really unlearning all of that stuff and teaching skills of how to ask and how to say no. But again, if you can't say no, cause you're scared, it's still not your fault. I'm just curious how many boys will come up to you after and say, well, what do I do if someone falsely accuses me? Oh, all the time. Oh, all the time. When Me Too first started, that that movement, uh, my inbox was full of guys saying, okay, false accusations, false accusations, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I say to them, okay, so what do you do? What do you do? So this is a big thing that what kind of what you said of where it's believing victims and also law, the, you know, justice and our legal system and all that kind of stuff. And I hate, I really, really hate saying this out loud, but as somebody who is a legal victim, um, sorry, a legal victim advocate. So I was working with victims. I was in the courtrooms filling out uh, things like civil no contact orders, orders of protection, which most people think of like um, restraining orders, things like that. But then going through that legal process, and I can tell you, it is so hard. It is so hard to convict someone of sexual assault. Um, unless there's certain circumstances with proof, a lot of the times it's that he said, she said thing. Mm -hmm. And I need people to understand that, like that, yes, the false accusations happen, but the percentage of what they happen, it's less than the percentage of like, how many times do you hear people who faked um, an attack or my house was robbed? It's like all of those things. And people think it's so easy just to say, oh, I was raped. But it's not. Um, and, and we can get into this and I could sit here and talk with you about this forever. But but it goes back to um, I actually recently just posted something on my Facebook, on my public page where it had a really great picture. And it said false accusations ruin men's careers. And it had pictures. It had, I think, maybe like, oh, gosh, like six different pictures of men who have been accused, some who have been arrested holding an Oscar holding a golden globe, holding a Grammy. And so I want you to think of two. Can you name one Bill Cosby uh, perpetrator uh, victim? Gosh, I can't. Exactly. That's the point. That is the point. If any of our viewers off the top of their head can name one Bill Cosby, you know, victim. Oh, okay. Yep. They were, they did it for the fame, right? You all know, you all know them or, or other victim names or things like that. So the idea is, and this was something actually that happened to me when I started uh, kind of getting my name out there, whether it was for my TEDx talk through, um, I was on the news a couple of times in the papers, things like that, being nationally known, where I had an old perpetrator say, she's just lying. She's trying to ruin my reputation. She's trying, you know, all of these things. And, and I was like, do you think that when I was 18 years old, <laughs> when my grandma or 17 or however old I was 16 when my grandma said hey you know what do you want to be when you grow up do you think I wanted to be nationally known as the rape lady like that wasn't my dream I didn't want to get famous you know and I'll tell you one story really quick I was at a target and I was in the produce section and I had this like junior high kid go hey it's the rape lady and I was like a teach not to do it like that, yep, that's me. But, but again, it just goes back to, right, like 
we don't do this because we want to get famous. We're doing this because we're trying to support and help other survivors and get justice. So again, would you have ever wanted something to happen to that friend who raped you? And this is the thing too. Um, I actually made this decision this year. Um, and the reason too, I'm actually going to record this for my podcast. Like I'm doing a special episode on this. Um, so I never reported my rape to the police and I didn't do it at the time because one, I didn't think it was rape. I didn't want him like in trouble or anything. Right. I was yeah. because like I didn't, I didn't quite understand what had happened to me, but this year I decided I'm going to report it that I'm going to report it. And, and this is another thing I want all listeners to, to know too, that there are, um, you know, certain statutes of limitation, things like that. Um, but with sexual assault, it's very, very broad. So for me, my rape happened in DeKalb, but I can go into any police, you know, facility and I can report. So I plan on reporting mine and it's not because I want him in jail. I don't, you know, quote unquote, want to ruin his life. Um, even though I have PTSD and I have to pay, you know, I have weekly therapy appointments. I'm on medication. Um, again, though, I always preface with because I have PTSD for multiple traumas, but I want to report because and making this decision um, almost 10 years after my assault, making this decision because I want my story to be another statistic in that sense. I want people to know that this happened. I want him to get that phone call from the police and be interviewed. And I know it won't go anywhere. You know, I won't go to court with him. I won't. Um, there's just not enough for that to happen. But I'm doing this to show others that even years and years after your abuse, you still have that right to report. You still have that right to seek justice, whatever that looks like for you. And that Something and I'm here to tell all the little Kevins in the world and the little Karens and, you know, all of the people that when you do something that harmful, there are consequences for your actions. There are and you cannot say, I didn't know better. Oh, this is what I was thinking. No, he knew going back to my story. He knew what he was doing. And I asked the students too, did he plan this? Did he buy my favorite booze? Did he specifically pick a scary movie so we'd get closer? Did he do this? Did he get me downstairs? Did he put his arm around me? He knew what he was doing because I told him no multiple times. So anyways, it's going back to, again, my whole career is just about showing my stories to give courage and to show examples for others as well. Well, you're doing important work because, you, you know, of course, in our day, and I'm probably a little bit older than you, but in our day, especially growing up in the Catholic school system, like yep. you wouldn't be talking about consent because you wouldn't be talking about sex at all. The only exactly. consent is the day you say I do. <laughs> right. Yes. And that's another thing, too. And the reason, too, if so, so anyone who follows me on Instagram, I am very open. I am a sex educator. That is what I do talking about um, one of the one phrase I, I really like is talk about the good, right? Instead of just always dissing on the bad. So let's talk about good sex. Let's talk about good, wonderful consent. Let's talk about healthy relationships, what it should look like. Let's talk about things like masturbation because masturbating is a physical right. But when you have another person involved in a sexual activity, whether it's just holding hands or kissing or something as extreme as sex, that is a privilege. 
And this is a big message that we send out to especially boys. So again, boys, um, mamas of boys, that that is like a right for them that that no, you could go your entire life without having sex if you cannot find a consenting partner. And that's okay. That's okay. And yeah. same with, with girls or non-binary or just general spectrum of anyone. You do not have to do anything that you don't want to do. And if forces are being put on you to make that decision, it is not your fault. Going back to something you were talking about earlier about being in the process of a divorce. I'm yes. wondering, I mean, I guess my initial question was like, um, how and why did you decide to be public with it? But I mean, you're public with all of your everything, yeah, all of your stories. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that but that was a decision you made recently to yep. to share this part of your life. Yeah, and that is one thing too that that I realized, like my sort of skill set is I've always been very open about things, and and I thank my mom for this. So my mom is a nurse. And I always tell people that the reason I am so open about things, um, and I'll tell you this cute, fun story. When I was a freshman in, in high school, we had to give a speech on some sort of disease. So people are picking like lung cancer, um, whatever, you know, all these different diseases. So I picked TSS, which is toxic shock syndrome, which if you all know, is yeah. typically from leaving tampons in for too long. Okay. So I, on my fancy little board, I stuck pads up there. I had tampons, you know, and then I did a demonstration where I put a super tampon and a small mini tampon, dipped them in water. And again, specifically showing the boys because they probably hadn't seen a, what an actual tampon does. And I lifted them out of the water to show the dip, blah, blah, blah. And so like that, I joke, was the start of my awkward, uncomfortable, you know, sex education career because I was just so annoying and out there and loud and just carly, right? Like that was my personality. That's who I am leading up to what I talk and speak about now, I owe to my mom because she was very open about things like sex. Like I got the sex talk early on. Um, I remember uh, just, just so much of that where in my house, I was comfortable with her open communication, talking, some tips I can give to, to the moms out there um, and parents where sometimes talking about these things oh, are so uncomfortable with our kids, right? And I know I kind of, I'm kind of going off from your question, but one of the things I always recommend is find a spot where you can talk without making eye contact. This is like a number one trick, like right in the car. Oh, yeah my favorite place, you know, kind of talking back to the divorce, um, is where when my husband and I, or my ex-husband, we were having these like rough conversations, we would sit at the counter in our kitchen where we were still next to each other, but we didn't have to look at each other in the eye. And, and that is something that I always encourage, um, with like teens, preteens, kids talking about these things, because, that level of eye contact when you're talking about things like sex or your marriage failing or whatever it might be getting emotional or crying, or you don't want to do that in front of someone. So little things like that, going back to communication, it's all about communication. And when I decided to kind of come public with my divorce, it was because my marriage was also so public. And in the beginning of our relationship and what my marriage looked like to the world was, oh my gosh, they're perfect right? They support each other. They're wonderful. They're great. And even through certain fights and things like that, like when we first started um, earlier this year, we started marital therapy or 
it's been it's been a little over a year now, but we did therapy, you know, couples counseling. And I was open and I shared that with the world that, Hey, like, look, we're struggling. We're normal people. And we're trying this. And again, there are so many times in my life where I thought I must be the only one, right. Mm -hmm. Or I must be, I am a failure. I am so low. I am so this. So that's why I am so open about my life because I needed that. And, and I still need that. I still follow and look to other people and I'm inspired by other people. So I love it every time, for example, when I shared about my divorce, I had so many people reach out to me and say, hey, I've been there too. I, mm-hmm. I got that in, re- in return. And so that is the beauty of community. And that is the beauty of, of social media too, where I've connected with people all over the world over these things and these issues Mm -hmm. and these topics. And, and I continue to do it. Yeah. I relate to that very much just because this podcast started because I started talking about postpartum depression and I still talk about it because moms regularly consistently tell me I feel that way too. That's all the fuel that I need to keep sharing the conversation because someone else needs to hear it. Someone else will relate. Yep. That was the same with my, I had a miscarriage this year as well. This year has sucked, (laughs) but like it really did this year with COVID as well. Really felt like I was back in my college days where it was just one thing after another, because I'm at this new stage in life as a mother, as an adult, as somebody in a, a career, like a successful career position. It just reminded me again of what I needed when I was in college going through those things. And even though this past year, with uh, my own parent, my own parents' divorce, with moving, with COVID, in a sense, losing my job really as a speaker, you know, that in-person connection on top of family things. But the difference this time was that I felt comfortable. I was in therapy on medication. And, and if I, things I needed to tweak, I was able to reach out and ask for help. And then I felt comfortable sharing my stories with all of my friends and my followers And I can't tell you how many times I cried this year for sad, terrible things, but how many times I've cried, happy, beautiful, wonderful. I am not alone. People love me. People are in the same boat. We're all in this together. Now, again, different privileges. So we're not entirely in the same boat, but we're in the same river, right? We're, we're, we're heading downstream and we're going to help each other out. (laughs) Well, and it goes back to what you were saying before, like you got to take care of yourself before you try to take care of others. And the difference is you are taking care of yourself. Exactly. And that's the thing. One of the biggest messages that I want to give to everyone in a relationship of where, where um, a big thing as a parent is that so many times I heard this of where I stayed in a relationship for my kid. And there are different privileges that come with that, especially somebody in a very abusive domestic violent relationship where the safety of their child or themselves is at hand. But for me, I knew that I could have maybe I could have maybe kept this marriage going if I wanted to, but it was not healthy. Like it, it, it wasn't, you know, like that's me, myself, even right there kind of blaming myself of, oh, a failed marriage or this or this, but what I'm doing was getting the help I need, the space I need, and that's going to make my child have such a better life where yeah. he has parents who are working together instead of who are bitter and terrible and hate each other in abusive, unhealthy relationships. And he is going to see that. He's going to look back and 
at this and say, wow, mom, you were great. You are strong. You are, you know, all that cheesy stuff. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. You know, I had, I had one more question written down and I'm not sure really where, where it kind of fits into this conversation, but there's such an obsession at the moment with true crime. Ooh, yes. I get why people are obsessed with it. I, you know, I'll dive into a podcast, you know, and, and binge it, but I'm wondering how true crime and, you know, watching murder stories impacts some of the messages that are so important, you know, to share, which is of the scary, the scary, you know, the night stalker and the whatever. Yeah. It's like, yep. All those scary. It, play, it plays right into the what's who's yeah. good, who's bad, who the perpetrator is. It's both a good and bad thing. We see all of these stories and we say, oh, that's crazy. That would never happen. And then you turn on another documentary of another story, another one and another one and another. Right. So like this stuff is happening. It's out there. But I will tell you one thing, too, that actually um, got me kind of into this field or like sparked my interest was I used to watch Law and Order SVU. Like, you you know, Olivia Benson. Oh, what a boss. Like she was my hero. And she is a very good example. That show has been around for. Oh, my gosh. Like as long as I'm. I'm alive like that long sort of deal. Right. But the idea behind it too, is that is a show. And this is especially for you and your field. That is the power of media and entertainment. This show started and she was just an, an actor who got this role and she became that role. She has her own foundation. She is an advocate for sexual violence and sex trafficking and domestic and like all of those special victims and child abuse. And so many people resonated with that show and her where some episodes were crazy out there stories, but then they also took episodes and based them off of real life situations. And then you have the episodes where I remember watching episodes where it felt more like the everyday stories, right? Or they looked, they kind of, kind of flipped the script on certain things with like sex workers too. And violence against sex workers is a huge thing. That's where you hear a lot of that phrase. She was asking for it. So that power of media and true crime. And then we have things like, have you seen the Tiger King? I have not seen the Tiger King. Oh my no. gosh. Okay. So that's one where it drives me nuts. I don't want to give anything away for you if you've ever started. But, <laughs> I'm probably but, not going to watch it. I okay, didn't watch okay. it when it first came out because I was like, the world is too bananas. Like I cannot yeah, add right? more like bananas to my life. No. Yeah. It, it took me a while. But, <laughs> but the running joke, the running joke is the one woman. Her name is Carol Baskins. And there's so yeah. many gifts and memes. And if you've heard her name, but, but the funny thing is that a man hired a hitman to kill her like that. That was the ending. One of the big things is that some a man wanted her dead because of a business. And there are some other issues of domestic violence in there as well. But it blows my mind how we have turned her into a joke. We have turned her her attempted murder into a joke. And there are little things like that where people are like, Carly, you're being too sensitive, right? Like how, you know, loose snowflake, like, but the idea is this rape culture, this culture that we live in where we blame women for everything, where we ask, what were they doing? They were asking for it, right? All of this stuff where all of those small little jokes and those things that 
men and young boys that our sons are hearing and that you and I and our listeners, we can be the most perfect, wonderful mothers and we can raise them great and well and beautiful and perfect, but they still have those outside influences, their friends, the media, entertainment, sports, whatever it may be. So that's why it's so important that we conquer all of it as a whole, right? And there are so many amazing, wonderful people out there in different organizations, and we're really coming together. So consent is just one part of it, right? Media and entertainment is just one part of it. There's so many things that intersect, and especially too, when it comes to bigger issues like racism, uh, homophobic, you know, I mean, I can list all the different like able body ism, like all of the isms that intersect with all of these issues that we have to keep in mind. So it really is the world coming together to conquer this. But I want our viewers to know that it starts at home, right? It starts at home with our kiddos and, yeah. and we can make a big change in this world through them. Well, I know that you know if um, if you follow podcasts that everyone and their brother has one. Everybody yep. has one. Yep. <laughs> you of all people need one because yeah. um, thank you. Like, this this has been um, such an interesting conversation, and I learned a ton. And um, you had me as riveted as your high school students. <laughs> We've covered a lot, and I know yeah. that's a lot to process. You know, ending with just like a little wrap up of remembering when someone comes to you for help saying those those three phrases of I believe you I'm here for you and it's not your fault and that if you are somebody who has experienced any of the things any of the issues we've talked about today just remember you're not alone you're not alone I myself you're here we're all here there are amazing wonderful organizations um, and I can give you some resources too that you can share but that's the beauty of things like this, where we can connect and meet each other online, have a great conversation, stay connected, stay friends, spread, spread the good news, right? And then talk about the bad news, but in a fun way too. So anyways, this has been amazing. And I thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. You really have a gift for this. Tell people when and where they can start finding your podcast when it's available. Sure. So the easiest way to go uh, would be askingforitpodcast.com. And also following on Instagram or on Facebook at Ms. So it's M-S, Carly Johnson, K-A-R-L-I. So feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you'll see from my Instagram, as you know, I'm very interactive. Fantastic. I wish you the best of luck. It's going to be thank a you. wild success. It's going to be thank great. You, thank you. I'm looking forward to listening as well. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you later. I hope you will check out Carly's Instagram and her podcast. She has great things on there and great things coming. So thank you so much to Carly for being a guest on a mother level. You know, I got to thinking, you guys, that there was this thing on Instagram that was all like, oh, tag a female business owner. Um, and I love that. I love that more than anyone, women come together and support each other in our creative ventures. And... I know people probably don't think of me this way because I work for a company and somebody signs my paycheck and all that stuff. But like, I might not be a small business owner, but I'm a small brand creator. And so when you think of female small business owners or female creatives, think about me too. I'm over here trying to do this brand and trying to pitch my on a mother levelness to all of you out there. So 
I guess what I'm asking is to share this podcast with a friend. It is my heart. It is my soul. And I work so hard to bring you guests and content that I know that you will like. So if you do nothing else today, please tell a friend about On a Mother Level. I will be eternally grateful to keep growing this mom community. To all of you who are already part of this podcast and you are a regular listener and you are a sharer and you are a believer, I appreciate you more than you will ever know. I appreciate the feedback, the messages that I get after these episodes drop. They mean everything to me. So thank you so much. If you're not already, follow me on Instagram. It's at on a mother level. We're posting preview clips over there. And um, I'm trying to share a few more of my like Abram and Everett isms. So for example, uh, the other day that I shared that Abram was having a whole fit about wearing shorts because he really wants to wear shorts now because his friends wear shorts, mom. Okay, like great. By the way, I don't have any shorts in your size because I didn't think ahead. Anyway, so after you know, a couple sentences of calling them shorts, all of a sudden he got very mad and he was like, mom, I want my sun pants. Apparently he thought by rebranding them as sun pants, that would miraculously mean that I have some 5T sun pants in his drawer, which I do not. Rectifying the situation, yes, I will address this, but anyway, so sun pants, someone get Ralph Lauren on the phone. It's all on a mother level on Instagram. Please follow along. Send me your feedback and share it with a friend. Thank you so, so much. You are listening to On a Mother Level. When it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.